there was an article in the New York Times, and it was entitled, Everyone is Cancelled. Top of the page, it had a white little spot for you to write down anyone's name in that text box. You could cancel anyone you like. You had the pleasure of cancelling anyone you like. And so, I cancelled myself. Dave Bingley is cancelled. Cancel culture is a phrase we're seeing more and more. In 2019, it was the word of the year, according to the Macquarie Dictionary. It's a complex phenomenon, and I'm sort of a bit hesitant to bring it up now. But I think there is some relevance to tonight's passage. Hopefully, you'll see it. So cancel culture is, um, it tends to be a call to bring about a withdrawal of support to usually a public figure. So you might, they, might be, um, they might have their acting roles cancelled. There might be a ban on playing their music at certain events. They're, they might be removed from social media in response to an accusation of a socially unacceptable action or comment by the figure. So Barack Obama last year weighed in on this phenomenon and he said, there's a sense among some people that the way of making change is to be as judgmental as possible about other people and that's enough. Now he caused quite a lot of controversy by saying that. In a, a short piece by Nick Cave, the Australian singer-songwriter, uh, entitled, What Do You Think of Cancel Culture? He describes cancel culture as bad religion run amok. Bad religion run amok. What he means by that is that when religion goes bad, which it can so easily do, it leads to a sense uh, of self-righteousness. A group of people who see themselves upholding a moral code and looking down upon others who don't. And um, it, it's not just looking down upon others, it's, it's sometimes actively seeking to destroy others. And we're Jesus followers. We saw that happen in our King and our Messiah, and we see it happen, I think, in this passage. It's a problem for potentially all of us, and especially people who seek to uphold a moral code. It's a really interesting thought for us as Christians. So cancel culture isn't a new thing. Self-righteousness isn't a new thing, but its dependence on social media is a new thing. There's story after story of known and unknown person often being on uh, caught on camera or saying something often very ugly and being piled, piled upon on social media. It's like a, a massive stacks on. And the effects aren't just... Well, they're not usually limited to social media. People are often losing jobs and livelihoods from the insensitive content they put on social media. And though something cancel culture is a way to keep the powerful accountable, I think there's some truth to that. My question for us to think about tonight is, is this culture of judgment that often comes from a place of anger and mercilessness, not always, is it a good thing? That's my question tonight. Is cancel culture a good thing? But before we jump into chapter 4, the main focus of the book of Jonah is God's heart towards the world. A world lost in wickedness, yet nonetheless loved by God. And that the challenge that this book 
gives to us, it gives to Jonah most directly, is will Jonah align his heart with God? So there's God's heart. Will Jonah align his heart with God? But the question isn't meant to stop at Jonah. If we're reading Jonah carefully, as we'll sort of talk about in a second, the spotlight is on us at the end of the book. We'll get there. So we're going to look at Jonah's heart, God's heart, and how we might cultivate a heart like God's. So Jonah's heart, um, we've already caught up on the story. Thank you very much, Alex. That was very, a very good summary. Um, as Alex said, Jonah asked to go to Nineveh to preach um, judgment, to cry out against its wickedness. As um, Alex said, but there was a detour, uh, you know, the, the fish and, the, and the, the ship, or the ship and the fish. And finally, he ends up on the shore of Nineveh. And last week, he ends up going into the heart of the city. He finally does what God wants him to do. He goes a, a day's journey into the city and he basically makes an announcement. It's just eight words. 40 days more and Nineveh shall be overthrown. You can imagine him saying it once and then shaking the dust of his feet and walking the same way he came in. But there's, there's irony in this message. There's a lot of irony in the book of Jonah. That's why I think it's, it's satire. I'm not saying it's not historical, but it's certainly satire. It's meant to make us laugh at points. So Jonah goes into the city, says that eight-word message that in, in 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. And the Hebrew word underlying overthrown could be translated to turn something over, to, to overturn. So it's used in Hosea to turn over bread in an oven. So when, when Jonah went to the city and cried out, 40 more days and Nineveh shall be overthrown, he obviously meant it as a bad thing. He wanted to go into the city and give them no wiggle room. Destruction is coming full stop. But the word for overthrown in the Hebrew can be used positively. In Psalm 30, the psalmist talks about God overturning, overturning my grief, overthrowing my grief and turning it into dancing, removing my sackcloth and turning it into joy. So... Jonah was right to say that the city would be overturned. But it wasn't what he was hoping for. The city was overturned from the least to the greatest. They turned to God. They repented in, in sackcloth and ashes. He never would have imagined this ever happening, and, and he didn't want it to happen, as we see in this chapter. But this was very displeasing to Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord... Is not this what I said while I was still in my own country? That is why I fled to Tarshish at the beginning. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and ready to relent from punishment. This is a profound moment of contrast. You've got the heart of God and you've got the heart of Jonah and they couldn't be further apart. And we find out why Jonah ran in the very first place. He didn't run from God's call to go to Nineveh because he was scared of the Ninevites. He ran because he knew the character of God. He knew that if they turned, God would be merciful. He was slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. This description of God in, in, verse, um, in verse 2 is a description of God we hear about over and over again in the Old Testament scriptures. It's sort of like John 3.16 for us. 
And God's heart here, or Jonah's heart, is diametrically opposed to God's heart. Jonah's heart is diametrically opposed to God's heart. If God would follow through on his mercy to the Ninevites, it made him angry. In fact, so angry that he saw no reason to live. So verse 3, And now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Is it right for you to be angry? Then Jonah went out of the city and sat down east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade, waiting to see what would become of the city. So despite knowing God had relented, Jonah was holding on to hope that God might still destroy the city. And I don't want to sort of use this the phrase tritely. Jonah was hoping that Nineveh would be cancelled, as literally as that term can be taken. And if it's true that the worst expressions of cancel culture are coming from a place of anger, judgmentalism and mercilessness, if that's true, that's what we see in the heart of Jonah. The great fish was meant to teach Jonah that we're all in the same boat. That's what the great fish was meant to teach them. If Jonah, if Ninevites, the Ninevites were to survive, they needed God's mercy. If Jonah was to survive at the bottom of the ocean, he needed God's mercy. But yet, the lesson in, in chapter 2 didn't shift the architecture of Jonah's deeply held beliefs. Jonah still managed to maintain a distinction between us and them, or, or himself and them them as worthy of destruction and himself as unquestionably in the right. And I'm convinced that in the book of Jonah, Jonah is a mirror. Jonah's a mirror. We're tempted to think, Jonah, what a fool, what an angry, emotional fool, up and down in his emotions. But his, in this book, the representative of God's people we're not meant to read this story and assume it doesn't apply to us. We'd be fools to do that. It's very possible for grace and mercy to have been shown to us and for it not to affect us deep down. Because when it does sink in, God's grace is a scary thing. God's grace is a scary thing. We might call it the scandal of the liberality of God's grace. We can't help define ourselves, or so often we can't help define ourselves, against certain people. We perceive ourselves as not being like certain people. So how we perceive ourselves has intrinsic to it excluding others. That can so easily happen. I'm not like that person. But grace dissolves those distinctions, and when it does... It gives us a jolt. It gives us a jolt in the way we perceive ourselves. So, for example, Kane Kek Iev, he was a leader in the Cambodian Communist Party, the Khmer Rouge, in the late 1970s. And that, that party was responsible for around 2 million deaths. And during the trials that followed, in, in the years following their reign, Cain Kek Iev expressed remorse, he pleaded guilty and was the only one who begged for forgiveness from the families of his victims. And what was his motivation? 
He was a Christian. In the years following, he heard the gospel and he turned to Christ. Which means he is as forgiven by God as you or I are. He is a brother in Christ. And if we can't define ourselves against a guy like this, do you feel the jock there in how you perceive yourself? You're in the same category, that is, in need of mercy, as him. Grace and mercy dissolve the boundaries between us and them. It's the scandal of the liberality of grace. And Jonah hated it. He hated it. And as a bit of a sidebar, a feature in this little book is that God makes good come from bad. And it is such good news that he can do that. Jonah runs away from God, yet he teaches Jonah through that running away. Jonah preaches an eight-word message to, to Nineveh, all about destruction, and God uses it to bring about transformation. Jonah is seething with anger, and now God is going to lead him from that place of anger to hopefully aligning his heart with God. It's the way God works. He brings good from bad, and thank God he does. So that's the heart of Jonah. Now the heart of God, verse 6. And I don't want you to miss as well, just before you move on to verse 6. God asks two questions of Jonah, and it's so gentle. It's it's like this non-anxious presence in the midst of the heat of Jonah's emotion. God asks, is it right for you to be angry? Isn't that beautiful? That's God. That's our God. That's how he deals with us so gently, so patiently. And then he proceeds to tell Jonah an interactive lesson. So verse 6, The Lord God appointed a bush and made it come up over Jonah to give shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was very happy about the bush. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the bush so that it withered. When the sun rose, God prepared a sultry, a scorching east wind. And the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint and asked that he might die. He said, it is better for me to die than to live. And again, God asks with beautiful gentleness, is it right for you to be angry about the bush? And he said, yes, angry enough to die. And here's the purpose of the lesson. Then the Lord said, you are concerned about the bush for which you did not labor and which you did not grow. It came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not be concerned about Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right from their left and also many animals? God wants Jonah's love for the vine to be a literal window into God's heart for all people. And for all creation, by the way, as well, the animals included. The vine is an opportunity for Jonah to see into God's own heart, especially towards those who we dislike. So when it comes to to those in our life who we dislike, I'm sure there are some in our life. When it comes to those people, it's so easy to fixate on those features of those people or what they've done, to fixate on those things at the expense of seeing their complex humanity. 
these people have histories, they have stories. And this little moment, this little teaching moment is an opportunity to open up our eyes, Jonah's eyes, to give us a fresh way to view all people, including those we don't like, to see them as more than their wrong, but as loved by God. So just as Jonah loved the plant, this plant that he didn't even tend to, it just happened to grow. Just as he loved that plant, God loves the Ninevites, and it's a how much more argument. If Jonah, if Jonah loved the plant after only having had it for a day, how much more does God love all people? People that he imagined and created and sustains and nourishes. This is a fresh way to view all people. That those people we disdain, they're still loved by God. And God is still nurturing them and sustaining them in their life. All the, the, the air they breathe is a gift from God. Their health is a gift from God. Their life is a gift from God. God's teaching Jonah to view everyone the way he views them. So that Jonah's heart might be aligned to God's heart. That's what this book is all about. If the book of Jonah ended in chapter 1, it would be a book about running away from God. You can't run away from God. That's what the book of Jonah would be about if it ended in chapter 1. If it ended in chapter 2, it would be, be about God saving us, about salvation. God saved Jonah from, the, from the, the seaweed of death that was getting around his necks. If it ended at chapter 3, it would be about repentance and transformation. But it ends at chapter 4. It ends at chapter 4, and it ends with an open question to Jonah. We don't, we don't hear how God responds to his question. And it's an open question to all of us. At the end of the book of Jonah, the spotlight isn't on Jonah, it's on us. How will we respond to the love of God towards those we don't like? Will we share the heart of God? That's what the book of Jonah is all about. In the late 1980s, in Ireland, there was heavy conflict going on between the IRA, so the Irish Republican Army, and the British colonial powers in Ireland. Heavy, heavy conflict. And a, a man named Gordon Wilson went to a, a British Independence Day celebration in the town square, him and his family. It was British Independence Day. And the IRA had planted bombs in all the buildings around the town square. And during the ceremony, the bombs went off. And Gordon and his daughter were caught under a wall that had collapsed. And they were stuck for a night and finally rescued. Gordon was alive, but his daughter wasn't. And in a BBC interview a couple of days later, a reporter who was present for that interview wrote a book about this. And he, he says this, No one who heard Gordon Wilson will ever forget what he said in that interview. His grace towered over the miserable justification of the bombing. Speaking from his hospital bed, Wilson described his last conversation with his daughter. She held my hand tightly and gripped me as hard as she could. 
She said, Daddy, I love you very much. Those were her exact words to me, and they were the last I ever heard. To the astonishment of the listeners, Wilson went on to add, but I will not bear a grudge. Bitter talk is not going to bring her back. I will pray tonight and every night for the men who did this, that God will forgive them. That's someone who shares the heart of God. So how might we cultivate hearts like that? I think God begins to teach us through that plant episode that we're to see all people in a fresh way. But the main thing Jonah needed to learn was that he was as much in need of mercy as anyone else, including the Ninevites. And the thing is, is that God, the gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, that same God had his character and flesh. He became a human being. And what happens when the God who is like that becomes a human being? Well, he does what Jesus did. Heals the sick, heals the blind, raises the dead. But the most mighty work of God in Jesus Christ was that he went to the cross. The point of the cross that he was destroyed so that grace could be shown to us. There was an exchange. Jonah didn't even want to go to the city. Jesus did it for us. And it's often said at the foot of the cross, the ground is level. We're all like the Ninevites, spiritually. We're all in need of mercy. We're all receivers of mercy. And it's that profound moment at the cross that moment that gives us the power to move forwards and show grace and mercy to the unlovely. And that's what our world needs. That's what our communities need. Needs. That's what our friends and colleagues need. They need people soaked in mercy to be agents of mercy. So Nick Cave, in the article I mentioned at the beginning, he talks about a particular value that all functioning societies require. A value that he thinks will dissolve cancel culture. And what is it? It's mercy. Mercy ultimately acknowledges that we are all imperfect and in doing so allows us the oxygen to breathe, to feel protected within a society through our mutual fallibility. Without mercy, a society loses its soul and devours itself. Mercy allows us the ability to engage openly in free-ranging conversations, an expansion of collective discovery towards a common good. If mercy is our guide, we have a safety net of mutual consideration, and we can, to quote Oscar Wilde, play gracefully with ideas. Without mercy, society grows inflexible, fearful, vindictive, and humorless. And the gospel provides ample resources for us to be merciful. something else we can learn from the book of Jonah. It was exactly the people Jonah liked least that God used to teach him mercy. So my question is, could the person you find so hard to love 
that person had been placed in your life as a divine invitation for you to grow in your grasp of mercy. To not only be a receiver of mercy, God's mercy, but to be a giver of mercy. And so a really simple activity to help you move towards that person is for you to write down the things that you find most difficult about that person. It might be their carelessness. It might be their selfishness. I don't know what it would be. To write them down and then to stop and to pray and then to go through that list and ask yourself, have I ever shown grace like that before? And the point of that exercise is to help us realize that we're all in the same boat. If we're ever to be people who share God's own heart towards those who we find hard to love, we need to grasp the mercy of God. Let's pray. Gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Father, we pray that you work in us hearts like this. Please do that work day in, day out. Please help us keep in step with you and how you work in our lives.